First Kings. So similar to First and Second Samuel, um, Kings was one book, and then it's been divided into, into two, First and Second Kings. It's not a very long book, uh, what, 22 chapters. Um, you could probably read it in two and a half hours, uh, maybe faster if you're a faster reader than me. And I'd really like encourage people to read it in um, kind of a short amount of time because the book itself, you can divide it into two halves, uh, the first 11 chapters and then the second 11 chapters. You've got the United Kingdom in the first 11 chapters and the Divided Kingdom in the second 11 chapters. And so when you read it in kind of quick succession, you can see the contrast really well between the two kind of uh, periods of the kingdoms. Again, it's a, it's a historical book that there's a lot of imagery in it in terms of, uh, for example, Solomon's kingdom is an image of uh, Christ's millennial reign. And then also I, I saw a lot of kind of similarities between the second half of the book and um, Christianity in its, in its present day. Again, roughly it covers probably about 350 years. Uh, that's if you add both First Kings and Second Kings. So obviously, yeah, over about, I think it's about 20 kings after Solomon in, in Judah and about 19 in Israel. So like I said, there's two kind of main sections, uh, the United Kingdom and the Divided Kingdom. Um, so the, the first section versus uh, chapters 1 to 11, um, like I said, it's Solomon's kingdom. So um, chapters 1 to 2, we get the, the ascension of Solomon to his throne. Uh, 3 and 4, you know, we see the wisdom and the, the glories of Solomon. I think that's 3, 4 and 5. 6 and 7, you get the building of the temple and of Solomon's house. Chapter 8, you get the dedication of the temple. Chapter 10, again, more of Solomon's fame, um, more of his wisdom as well. And then chapter 11 is kind of the, the odd chapter out of this kind of section. Um, it's um, basically the falling away of, of Solomon um, from God. Um, so kind of if you're looking at Solomon's reign as the, um, the picture of Christ's millennial reign, you, you kind of got to leave that chapter out. Um, and then in the, in the divided kingdom, chapters 12 to 14, um, you get the division of the kingdom and then the dealing of Jeroboam by God. 15 to 16, you get various kings. Chapter 17 to 19, you get the introduction of uh, Elijah. We all know who Elijah is. Um, lots of works of power by him. You also get the introduction of King Ahab. And then you also get the introduction of Elisha, who is Elijah's successor. And then chapters 20 to 22, you get kind of just the focus of Ahab. And, um, I put up the king's... Here, I don't know. You guys on Zoom won't be able to see it. But basically, First Kings finishes up with Ahaziah um, on the Israelite side of the kingdom and Jehoram on the Judah side of the kingdom. But I just wanted to kind of point out a couple of things that really stood out to me. Um, and just going back to kind of the first half of the, the book, which... Like I've said, it's it's the it, we see Solomon's ascension to the throne, 
Um, and his ascension to the throne involves basically cleaning of house. Um, you know, for there to be the perfect reign, um, again, keeping in mind that this is a picture of the reign to come of the Lord Jesus, um, there's, there's judgment that happens before um, his kingdom is really established. And this judgment is brought down upon three particular characters. And the first character I want to speak about is Job. We've already heard uh, from Peter how Job was kind of a worldly man. He appeared to understand kind of the mind of God, but there was no true faith in him. If we go to chapter 2 and verse 5, this is David speaking to Solomon. It says, Moreover, thou knowest also what Job, the son of Zariah, did to me, and what he did to the two captains of the host of Israel, unto Abner, the son of Ner, and unto Amasa, the son of Jethna, Jetha, whom he slew and shed the blood of war in peace and put the blood of war upon his belt that was about his loins and in his shoes that were on his feet. So clearly we have Job here. Yeah, he's, he's a sinful man. He's, he's a murderer uh, by any standard. Um, you know, even by, as believers, we can, you know, sit here and we've got the word of God. We know that you, know, you shall not kill, you shall not do this, you shall not do that. But I think even outside Christendom and outside Bible and outside faith, I think people would recognize this man as, as a criminal, a person who is um, not good. You know, people might not take kind of the other commandments as uh, seriously as, say, murder. You know, if you were to lie to someone at work or something like that, they might just kind of look over it. It's not, it's not a big deal to them. But even by the world standard, Job was a sinful person. Um, his evilness is apparent. And so... Um, David tells Solomon that this is one type of character you need to judge uh, for establishing the kingdom. The second character is Adonijah. This guy, he had no consideration for the authority of God. bit of history about him. He's Absalom's younger brother, Solomon's older brother, and he wanted the kingdom for himself. But if we read again in chapter chapter 2, in verse 15, and this is him speaking to uh, Bathsheba, Solomon's mom, and he, and he said, Thou knowest that the kingdom was mine, and that all Israel set their faces on me, and that I should reign, albeit the kingdom is turned about and is become my brother's, for it was his from the Lord. I mean, he says it with his own mouth. Um, my Bible translation says here yeah, the Lord. Um, I was reading in the Darby translation, it says Jehovah. He's basically saying God has given the kingdom to Solomon, and yet he doesn't want to accept that. You know, it's who is he to kind of who is man to argue with, with God? And he recognizes the authority of God, but he doesn't want to be in subjection to it. He knows that Solomon is the rightful king doesn't want to be subject to him. Um, he wants to be in that position, which is not rightfully his. He wants to be in the position of king. And he's asking for things that are not rightfully his. He's asking for, uh, what's her name? Abishag, who was the wife of David. Not really 
she was kind of, she just served him. Um, but he asks for her. Um, but it's, it's not right. It's not rightfully for him to ask. Um, so this is this. His character really kind of uh, is the type of person who is not willing to have the Lord Jesus in their life um, as as the head. Um, is not. They're not willing to put Christ first in their life. And you know we see that in the world around us where people reject the Lord Jesus and don't want him as um, head in their life. And sadly, you know, it's also the case of a lot of believers. You, know, you get saved and like, oh, that's fantastic, but I'm going to live life my own way rather than putting Christ on the throne. Adonijah was this person who didn't want Solomon on the throne, the true king. Shimei is the third character I want to speak about. And again, here's another legacy character from the kingdom of David. He was one person who was, uh, you could say, self-righteous. Um, when David was uh, called exile, I guess, um, being chased by his own son, Absalom, Shimei was one person who stood in front of David and cursed him and threw stones at him. He was just a, a horrible person. Um, you know, he mocked David in his time of exile. But when David returns to his kingdom, he's quick to make peace with him. Um, and, you know, David promises not to kill him, but David instructs Solomon specifically about Shimei, telling him that he needs to take care of this person. Uh, like I said, this is the type of person who is self-righteous. He doesn't think that he's done anything wrong. Uh, Solomon makes a deal with him, says, you know, you go build a house in this particular city. Um, you're not allowed to leave that house. Oh, so you're not allowed to leave that city. If you do, I'm going to put you to death. And he goes, oh, yeah, that's fine. That's good. The words that you've spoken are good. By his own mouth, he said that. A couple of years later, I think it was about three years later, um, two of his servants um, go to another city. They run away. Maybe he's a bad master. I don't know. Uh, but basically, he goes after them himself. He doesn't send someone else. And it's basically saying, yep, I've heard what Solomon's had to say. Um, don't care what he has to say. It doesn't really apply to me. And, you know, it's a, he's just he's self-righteous. He doesn't think he needs discipline, really. And I guess from a practical sense for our own, in our current day, you know, a lot of people consider Christianity as and the message of salvation. And they say it's all good. And it's 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 great, and it's but you know I don't need it. It's not for me. You know I'm not doing anything wrong. This doesn't apply to me. But that was really kind of the character you get of Shimia. Um, it doesn't think he's done anything wrong, and he is judged um, for it. So these three characters uh, are all put to death by Solomon. You know they can't be present in his reign, um, and I think in a similar fashion. We won't see these type of characters uh, prevailing um, during the Lord Jesus' reign as well. Um, you know, we think of Lord Jesus' reign is going to be, like Peter said, things are going to be put in order, and obviously we know that Lord Jesus' reign is going to be a perfect reign. Um, and so I guess I, some of the characteristics of Solomon's reign, that, um, I guess a, ref, a reflection of the Lord Jesus' reign would be, Justice and righteousness. And if you turn to chapter 10, 
and verse 9, this is uh, Queen of Sheba speaking. And she says, Blessed be the Lord thy God, who delighted in thee, to set thee on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore made he the king to execute justice and righteousness. Um, and that was true of Solomon. It's going to be true of the Lord Jesus. A just reign, righteous reign. Um, chapter 3, verses 16 to 28. Again, a well-known story. I encourage you guys to read it. Um, again, you see the wisdom of, of Solomon. You know, two women, um, both have newborns. One of them died. And they're both fighting over the, the one that's still alive. And if you know the story, you know it. If you don't, go read it. I won't spoil it for you. Um, uh, chapter 10, again, verse 21. And it says, all, And all King Solomon's drinking vessels are of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon are of pure gold. None were, none were of silver which was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. Again, a time of plenty and of blessing. Again, a reflection of the Lord's reign. Chapter 4, verse 25. Again, a really well-known verse. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, every man under his, under his vine and under his fig tree, from Dan even to Bathsheba, all the days of Solomon. And Dan was the most, most northern part of the kingdom. Bathsheba was most southern part of the kingdom, you know, just blessing um, from across the nation. And, you know, it's going to be blessing for the whole world when the Lord Jesus reigns. Um, again, chapter 9, verse 22. Uh, but, but of the children of Israel did Solomon make no slaves. Again, just blessing to those who belong to Solomon, belong to the nation of Israel. Um, and I guess just the character of uh, the kingdom, another character of the kingdom of Solomon was it was the center of the world. A lot of kings from around the world came, paid homage to Solomon, gave him gifts, came to see his wisdom. Um, also, you know, as we've read, in that Solomon builds the temple, it was the center of worship as well. Uh, you know, there's order and there's stability in the kingdom. You know, if you compare that to the current state of the world, there's just chaos. We've got pandemics, we've got crises. But in Solomon's reign, the same in the Lord Jesus, it's just going to be, you know, where he reigns is going to be the center of the world. It's going to be the center of worship. It's going to be order. So that's kind of the first half of the book up to chapter 10. Um, I'll just go, I guess, quickly through the second half. I did want to mention one thing about Solomon. Chapter 11, and for anyone who's young, thinking about getting married, marry one wife, <laughs> not a thousand. Um, but I think what I wanted to say, chapter 11, verse 9, and this is quite a, a solemn verse, and it says, The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel, who had appeared unto him twice. And I found it interesting, Bible mentions that, God had appeared unto him twice. It was a very special privilege that, to, that God himself appeared to Solomon, spoke to him, and yet Solomon turned his heart from the Lord. Uh, you know, we, if you read through the Bible, there's 
a lot of people who did have that face-to-face -face relationship with God. A lot of people, for example, King David, sometimes spoke with God, sometimes it was the prophet Nathan that spoke um, to David, so God spoke through him. Uh, in the second half of Kings, God speaks to the kings through prophets, Elijah, Ahijah, Elisha, etc., etc. So it was a very privileged position that Solomon was put in, and it's it's heartbreaking to see that he turned away from from the Lord. Um, second half of the of the book, um, and again, I don't want to go through all of it. I just want to speak, I guess, about the beginning of the second half when the kingdom is divided. Um, so again, if you don't know the story, there's um, Solomon, I think Greg pointed out to us when we're going through Proverbs that he actually had a couple of daughters, but I think we, are, we only think he only had one son, who was uh, Rehoboam. Uh, and he, he did two things, right? So, so the people of Israel come to basically set him over them as king. And they say to him, Solomon was really kind of uh, uh, a tough taskmaster. Can you kind of relieve some of this um, off us? And, you know, he does two things right. It says um, he took time to answer them. He said, give me three days. That was, that was a good thing to do. You know, there's no reason for us to take serious decisions quickly. And he asked advice from the elders. Again, a great thing to do to ask advice of those who are older than us, more experienced than us, particularly when it comes to things of the word of God, and just, you know, Christian life in general, I guess. Uh, but some of the things he did wrong was also he took advice from his friends and there was no logical reason for him to give the answer that he did to the people. Um, you know, Solomon had set up this great kingdom, established it. It was a wealthy kingdom. You know, it's not like he was lacking anything. That there was no reason for him to to drive the people harder than they already were. And it's interesting to note that he was um, actually 41 when this happened. So it just goes to show that age is not, uh, or wisdom is not dependent on age. Just because someone's a bit older doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be wise. In fact, he was quite foolish in the way he conducted himself, um, and. That's why we get the split of the nation into Israel and Judah. That's where you get Judah and the Jews, Israel being 10 tribes. And I think we can say that also the reason why the kingdom wasn't taken away from him completely was, was because of the promise that God had made to David in that he said, I will always have a lamp, a light in the house of David. And as we know, Peter said, that the uh, Lord Jesus is a descendant from the uh, line of David. And maybe when we cover Second Kings, I'll get Mike to mention the curse on Zedekiah. But that's in Second Kings. I'll get you to speak about that. Um, but yes, yeah, so that's the reason, one of the reasons why I guess the kingdom wasn't fully given over to Jeroboam, who was uh, who became king over the ten tribes of Israel, and he was no better than uh, Rehoboam. He was just as foolish, 
And God himself promised uh, Jeroboam that he would establish his kingdom if he walked in his ways. Uh, so what does he do? He turns away from God and he causes the whole ten tribes of Israel to turn away from God. Uh, and it's not like he didn't have a knowledge of God or it's not like he didn't see the power of uh, God in, in his circumstances. Uh, for example, um, Ahijah was the prophet that spoke to him and told him that that God's going to tear away the kingdom from uh, the house of Solomon and give it to him. And obviously that comes to pass. You know, that alone should be kind of evidence that God is almighty and powerful and able to do everything and he's able to establish the kingdom. Um, and he has personal dealings with God. Uh, you know, his hand dries up one stage. A prophet prays, a man of God prays for him and it becomes better. Uh, you know, his son gets sick and he recognizes uh, the authority of God and he inquires of this same prophet, Ahijah, about his sick son. So he had evidence of the, the power of God and he totally just ignores that. Uh, you know, he doesn't take God up on faith. Uh, you know, God says he's going to establish his kingdom and he says, no, it's not going to happen. Uh, Rehoboam has still got Jerusalem where the temple is. You know, the ten tribes are going to leave me because that's the true place of worship. They're going to go there. Um, so he ends up setting up two golden calves and placing one in uh, Beersheba and one in Dan. Again, the southernmost point of the kingdom of Israel, the northernmost point of the kingdom of Israel, and basically gets the whole nation of Israel to turn away from God in following idols. Um, so again, he had clear evidence of the dealings of God in his life, and he chose to turn away from them. Um, and just back to that point about his, his son getting sick, it's actually quite a nice chapter to read in chapter 14 and verse 13. And it says, so this is the prophet Ahijah speaking to Jeroboam's wife about their sick son. Um, his name is Abijah. It says, All Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, for he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave, because in him there is found some good thing towards the Lord God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. Um, I guess just on a side note, this is really nice kind of to see the mercy of God. Um, you know, because of uh, Jeroboam's turning away from God, God said, you know, you haven't followed my ways, I'm going to destroy your house. Um, but God sees in Abijah, Jer Jeroboam's son, that he was a, a just child. And um, he had a good thing towards God. And rather than letting him go through the destruction of his father, Jeroboam's house, God decides to, to take him home peacefully. You know, some people say, oh, you know, but, you know, is, you know he let him die. But really, it's, it's the mercy of God um, that you can see in this, in this story. And I can't help but be reminded of Abraham when he was speaking with God 
about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. There's you know, 10 people, or five people. I can't remember the numbers, but God is a merciful God. And he's not one to just overlook people and just kind of chaotic destruction. If there's a good person, a righteous person before him, he'll be merciful to them. And again, so Jeroboam's sin, like we've, we've um, spoken about, we see in chapter 12, verse 29, and that's um, where he built the two the two idols and set them one, Dan and Bethel. Sorry, I think I said, I just, I said it before. It's Bethel, not um, and God sees this as such a serious sin in that um, even after, you know, if you read through First Kings, Second Kings, a lot of the kings of Israel uh, referred back to Jeroboam's sin. He's used as the standard of, unfortunately, evilness uh, for him. Uh, and we can see kind of a... Um, a picture as well of kind of modern times in that it's it's a it's a false religion uh, and it takes the form of I guess you say Christianity in that uh, in this case Jeroboam says to the people of Israel because these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt they weren't the gods that brought them out of Egypt um, you know Jerusalem has um, particular uh, feast months, feast months, and you know days of feast and things like that. And he replicates that in Israel. Uh, so it, it almost looks like it's it's the real thing. It almost looks like it's the the real, I guess, religion. But it, it's not the the true uh, way or the true place of worship. Uh, and I guess we see that a lot in uh, modern times, especially in the, in the circle of Christendom, where you get a lot of kind of, whether it's false doctrine or false teaching or just false ways of worship, which, you know, people say, oh, you know, we're Christians or, you know, we believe in God or and this and that. But really, deep down, it might look the same, but it's it's definitely not. And... Um, you'll see kind of the, the decline of the two nations of Israel and Judah. And again, I, personally, I see kind of the, the resemblance between kind of decline in the testimony of uh, Christendom as well. Um, and one really kind of lesson that I saw in this as well is that um, there's a man of God. You can read the story in chapter 13. Again, just, just amazing kind of to see the power of God working um, but basically, this man of God declares judgment on these false uh, altars that uh, Jeroboam had set up. Uh, and God instructs this man, saying, uh, do not eat bread there and do not drink water there, which speak to us of fellowship. Um, you know, if we in modern times see things that are not right, see whether it's, you know, obviously religions, other religions kind of, we know they're not correct. But within the circle of Christendom, if we see, see things that are not correct, we need to kind of 
I guess, abstain from those things. There is not, there's, there's not to be any fellowship with them. Um, and again, I don't want to spoil the story too much for you guys. I want you guys to go read it. But, you know, when there is mixing with, with these um, kind of false teachings, false doctrines, there was death and destruction. And um, that was, it was quite a strong testimony for that, in that, um, you know, this guy gets killed by a lion. I'm spoiling a little bit, but the lion stands by the carcass. You know, you think, you know, you imagine walking down the street and seeing a donkey, a dead man, and a lion just standing. <laughs> um, it's just, just the testimony that you get from that. And it's, it's, it's bizarre because the lion didn't eat him. It didn't attack anyone else. It was just there for a pure testimony uh, for the judgment against this man. And it was just, it's just incredible to read. And I couldn't help but be reminded of um, Galatians chapter 1, verse 8. And I think it's Paul saying, um, even if an angel comes down with another gospel, don't accept it. And this is exactly what you see here uh, in this chapter. God's word is consistent, it's complete, we have it in our hands, there's nothing else that we need. There's nothing that we need to add to it, there's nothing we can take or subtract from it. Um, you know, we just need to, to read it and rely on him, and I guess rely on um, other brothers as well. Um, and... Again, just another point for those who were here on Wednesday night. Um, Brother George made a comment about uh, the 7,000 men who had not bowed the knee to Baal. And uh, he said it's really kind of a picture of the current um, Christendom where you've got um, kind of true believers just scattered throughout all of Israel. And again, this is why I feel like the second half of Kings is, again, for me personally, I saw a lot of kind of resemblance between Christendom and, um, and yeah, the second half of Kings. And just, just to kind of finish up, I know we've gone way over time. Uh, on the left-hand side, Kings of Israel, um, it's a broken bloodline. Um, you know, it's it's not always father, it's not always son after father. There's lots of murders, suicides. Um, yeah, people just different different people, different families becoming um, kings. Whereas, as we said before, uh, Rehoboam on the Judah side is descendant of David, and that's a single bloodline that goes all the way down to Joseph, the father of Jesus. So yeah, again, I'd encourage everyone to read this, this book, especially as well the second half. You see a lot of um, the life of Elijah, a lot of the miracles that, he's, that he does. Quite in encouraging as well to see someone stand so faithfully amongst so many unfaithfulness um, in Israel. And it's, I guess, encouraging for us as well as we walk through this world to, to see that God is always there providing for us and will be faithful to, to us if we're faithful to him. Um, and again, like I said, you know, you get the introduction of Elisha, 
Um, the book itself concludes with the two kings that I've highlighted in bold, Ahaziah, Jeroboam, and um, I guess you'll read about the other kings in Second Kings, but David takes over. So yeah, it's kind of, hopefully that's kind of, like Mike says, what's your appetite to read First Kings? God, um, and how David was a type of the Lord Jesus, and he mourned for Saul, and he mourned for Abner. I just want to read a couple of quick verses in Ezekiel. Um, have a look at chapter 18 of Ezekiel. Have a look at verse 23. This is God's voice speaking. Have I any pleasure at all in the death of the wicked? And that's a rhetorical question. God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Not only that, have a look at verse 32. This is God again. I have no pleasure in the death of him that died, says the Lord. So not only the death of the wicked, but God has no pleasure in the death of the one that dies. And this is repeated again. Uh, these verses in chapter 33 of Ezekiel. So just sort of backing up those those points, the mercy of God and the goodness of God towards man brought out in the heart of David in his mourning after a wicked man, Saul, and and even a righteous man, Abner. That um, God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked and God has no pleasure in the death of the one who dies. And that's something beautiful that, that comes out of that character of God. Um, 